Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. We'll look at verses 24 through 34 tonight as we seek to answer yet another difficult question, a, a trend that we started on Sunday uh, that will continue tonight. And the subject and the question is, what is your birthright worth? What is your birthright worth? Genesis 25, starting in verse 24, reading to the, end of the, reading to the end of the chapter. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Verse 27, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sought, sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, which is where we get the Edomites, is from Esau's lineage. <clears throat> Verse 31, And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to give us the blessing, give us understanding. Remove, Father, those distractions that are upon our hearts and minds. Father, help us to keep the world at bay that we might be fed heartily this night. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here the bargain made between Jacob and Esau about the right, which was Esau's by birth, but Jacob's by promise. And we don't want to forget that. So if you'll look back a little earlier in this chapter, when the children were in the womb and they were <clears throat> struggling with, with one another, we read in verse 22, And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, Rebekah speaking, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And we didn't have to get very far before we saw the fulfillment of what the Lord had already proclaimed. This birthright was for a spiritual privilege. And we see Jacob's desire of the birthright uh, almost immediately. But he sought to obtain it by crooked courses, which we'll deal with as we go through this lesson. Uh, he, he doesn't seek to get it like a plain man, which is the characteristic that we see of a description of him, but uh, deceitfully, which is a characteristic we'll see quite often with him as we go through the study. He was right that he coveted earnestly the best things, but he was wrong that he took advantage of his brother's need. The inheritance of their father's worldly goods did not descend to Jacob and was not meant in this proposal, but it included the future possession of the land of Canaan by his children's children and the covenant made with Abraham as to Christ the promised seed. Believing Jacob valued these above all, all things, unbelieving Esau despised them. And of course, we, we mentioned at the close of the last lesson last Wednesday is that we're following the promised seed all the way through. It could only come from one of the two brothers. The promised seed, Jesus Christ, would not be a son of both. It could only be a son of one. So the very first point that we want to deal with tonight is what's in a name? 
both boys got their names from their actions or their names justify or justly rather justly describe their actions the first boy was harry and he was named esau which literally means harry and later his connection with the red pottage gave him the nickname edom which means red and we see that in verse 30 jacob's laying hold of esau's heel as though to catch him and trip him gave him the name jacob the heel gripper also translated at times supplanter schemer and deceiver wonderful nicknames no doubt uh if you're thinking about baby names right now you might want to keep these things in mind uh those in the back pew the twin boys were opposite each other in appearance and they were opposite each other in temperament which is exactly what the lord had said would be the case in verse 23 jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home we see the word plain used in his description which literally means perfect or complete it doesn't mean homely or boring as we might think but rather perfect complete or even mature it's the same word that's used in job chapter 1 verse 8 and the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect, there's the word, and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And we see he's described here as this plain, perfect, complete, or mature man dwelling in tents. And again, this isn't derogatory, like Grandpa Abraham. He's dwelling in tents. This is the very same characteristic that we knew of Abraham. Esau was a man of the world. Esau was full of vigor. Esau was full of adventure. Uh, if you're here in Lost tonight, Esau probably sounds real exciting. Esau would be downtown right now, partaking in the trunk or treat, dressed as a wild man, dressed as himself, going about frolicking with the partiers. But that's not the description we have of Jacob. Is it not amazing that time had revealed what God had already proclaimed? Time literally, for us as the readers, before the end of the chapter, but we see in what we just read that the boys grew, according to verse 27. So some years have gone by, and time revealed to, Rebe to Rebecca and her husband Isaac that which God had already said was going to be the case. Some of the world would state that Esau's characteristics are admirable. But let us consider for a moment what Dr. Henry Morris says. What is good about Esau's... Uh, being a cunning hunter being a cunning hunter Esau, esau's family was not in the la, in the least endangered by wild beasts nor did they with their extensive flocks and herds have any need to slaughter deer and other wild animals for food that there was no overpopulation of animals that needed thinning out for the sake of a balanced ecology is obvious from the fact that esau had to be a cunning hunter to find them Boy, if you're looking at these outlines, I don't know what I did to this one. The only other hunter mentioned in the Bible is Nimrod, who it says in Genesis 10.9 was a mighty hunter before or against the Lord. One biblical hunter was a, re a rebel against God, and the other was a sportsman unconcerned with God. Esau preferred playing out in the field even long after he was a grown man to working for his family and serving the Lord. I don't get from this that dr henry morris is attacking hunters I don't, I don't know what his stance is on hunting but i don't get from this that he's against hunting i get from this that there's a practical need for hunting and certainly it's looked at today as a sport 
But there's nothing here that gives us the idea that Esau and what he was doing was needful for the family, needful for society as a whole, or needful for protection. So when it refers to him as a cunning hunter here, and, and really it should kind of break our hearts as we read verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. That's kind of sad. Is that any different than Archie Manning, though? He loves his boys. They do exactly what he did. Is it any different than any other father who vicariously lives through their child playing a sport or being real good at this or that? And it's a good thing to have traits that you're good at. And it's a good thing to support your children. It's a better thing to lead them in the way that they should go. It's a better thing to point them to God. It's a better thing to love them unconditionally because you've been commanded to do so, Mom, Dad. You've been commanded to abstain from all appearances of evil for their sake and yours. But what we read in verse 28 is that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. That's not the same love that's described of Abraham back in Genesis 22 of Isaac. This is a very different love. And in this same verse, Rebekah loved Jacob. We're not provided a reason. I don't think she's perfect even in the slightest. She does take place in the Bible after Adam, after all. So we know that she's fallen. Well, what a sad verse when it comes to this, this household. This is one family. What a sad commentary it is to see that Isaac had a reason to love his son rather than love him unconditionally. What a shame that Isaac did not lead his son Esau on a better path. And we will see evidence that later he could not tell goat meat from venison. So how special was this venison to him? Alas, Esau had no spiritual appreciation. He would rather feed his body than enjoy the promises of God. Jacob's pottage pleased Esau's eye. This is what we see at the conclusion of this chapter. And there's not another way to describe it. It pleased his eye. He was hungry. His own words, what good's a birthright if I die of hunger? Now, a scrawny guy comes and says that. You probably feel some emotion about that. Somebody that looks like me that says, I'm about to die of starvation, you probably would have a little less pity. Doesn't look like I've missed too many meals up to this point. I'll probably last a minute. Esau knew how to provide. I mean, what we know about Esau so far, other than his appearance, is that he knows how to get food. He's a cunning hunter. And maybe it's even more proof that he's not necessarily hunting because he's hungry. He's starving here. Why is he starving? Gratifying the sensual appetite ruins thousands of precious souls. When men's hearts walk after their own, their own eyes, and when they serve their own bellies, they are sure to be punished. Why are lost rich people unhappy? I mean, by definition, they have the money. They could purchase happiness, couldn't they? Why would they ever be miserable? Why would they ever be longing? Why would they ever be hungry? What Esau should have been hungry for here isn't pottage. What he doesn't have here is a care for spiritual things. Let's go back a minute. Genesis 4. Two other brothers. Very similar. One wanted what the other one had, but maybe couldn't even define what it was that he wanted. And because he didn't have it, because he was scolded by the Lord because sin was at the door, he killed his brother. This is a very similar situation. Consider Job 31, verses 5 through 8. If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, 
Let me be weighed in an even balance, that God may know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow, and let another eat. Yet let my offspring be rooted out. This is the approach that should be taken by the Christian. This is the approach that should be taken by one who trusts the Lord. That it be the Lord's will and not our own. We desire to eat probably between 8 and 10 every morning, between 11 and 1 every afternoon, and from 5 until midnight. Right? And we'd probably be painfully hungry if that 11 to 1 window's missed and it's 2, 2.30 and we hadn't had anything to eat. We don't know anything about the starvation that Esau is describing here. And that's a pretty good comparison to how little he actually knew about his spiritual starvation at this point. He couldn't have understood it. He didn't have an appetite for such things. If we use ourselves to deny ourselves, we break the force of most temptations. It cannot be supposed that Esau was dying of hunger in Isaac's house. The word signifying, I am going towards death, he seems to mean, I shall never live to inherit Canaan or any of those future supposed blessings. And what would it matter who has them when I am dead and gone? This is the, the phrasing that Esau uses in this chapter. What does it matter? What does it matter? I mean, consider Paul's words in comparison. He talks about living, being for Christ. He talks about dying, being for Christ. Think again of Esther. If I perish, I perish. But she's going to perish doing what? Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord's people. There is a great need, beloved, not just today, but for all time, for us to be servants. Not necessarily for us to always be the ones served. For us to actually get a little dirty. For us to actually answer the question, whom do we say he is? That is the calling of everyone in this room, everyone watching that knows the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Don't give them my number to answer that question. They want to know who you say he is. More importantly, Jesus wants to know who you say he is. I think too often times these days, we as Christians have a set of apologies instead of apologetics. We're not prepared to defend our faith. We're prepared to apologize if it hurts somebody else's sensibilities. That's why we're not downtown right now, given the gospel, and we're in here. i got to just speak for myself. I know that I'm real quick to grab at the holster with apologies in it than the apologetics, than to grab the real reasons for which I defend my faith, the reasons I believe what I believe. Esau here caves. His entire manhood is given up his birthright is given up his livelihood is given over his little brother says swear unto me and he swears do we give thought to the things that we swear to to the sureties that we enter into we ought not be entered into them at all if we follow scripture but do we give thought to these things Oh, it's just money after all. It's just my firstborn after all. Just my wife after all. What's the odds that something could go wrong? Pretty good. Pretty good in a wicked world where man's imaginations are only evil continually. There's real good chances things are going to go wrong. We see here Rebecca loved Jacob at the close of verse 28. And this is our second point. 
What we have seen of Rebekah thus far would imply that she knew that the Lord had blessed Abraham and that he had blessed his son. She probably would still have the words of that faithful servant echoing through her mind on that trip that she took back to this land. She'd have been well informed of the promised lineage that was to come from one of her boys. And maybe there's some pride there. But again, these aren't cave people. They understand where babies come from, and they understand that this promised lineage has to continue to come. It has to continue to come from one or the other. Genesis 25, 23, The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. We see a situation then as a result in which she treated one son differently than the other something that we also have already noted Isaac does with Esau. She does a bit with Jacob. I'm not suggesting here she doesn't love both, but we see a clear preference in verse 28, one parent for the other. And sometimes this happens as a result from one parent already doing it so strongly towards one child that the other parent swoops in to protect or nurture the one that's not getting the love. It's a thing to be cautious of, parents. It's not a thing that's easy. I don't believe the Lord blesses uh, a mom and a dad or, or one or the other these days with a child lightly. I don't think he does it lightly. And we can see these circumstances and say, how, Lord? Why, Lord? How could this be? What a horrible situation. And sometimes that child sent along so the parent will grow up. And sometimes that child is sent along because that's the exact parent that child's going to need. It's an interesting thing to marry a young lady, speaking from experience, and watch her become a mother. I, I imagine if she were honest, she'd tell you 17 years ago she didn't think she'd be the mother that she is today. But we've gone through circumstances, haven't we, in the last few years with COVID, with government, and so on and so forth, where we have to learn where true strength resides. We have to truly understand the stewardship that we have as parents, the responsibility that we have to these children, the responsibilities that have been lacking for maybe a generation or two concerning public schools, politicians, and so on and so forth. And it's time for us to own it. It's time for us to look down the throat of this upcoming election and do our homework. It's time for us to consider the responsibilities that we have and man up, woman up, grow up, find the Lord. Put him first and foremost before all these distractions. It doesn't matter who wins the big game this weekend, guys. And ladies, it doesn't matter who the bachelor or the bachelorette chooses. There'll be another one. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day that your child is still looking to you, still listening to you, and they still need the gospel. That's more important than anything else you're going to tell them about. Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob seems to love Rebekah from what we've already read ahead of, of, of the experience with uh, sending him back to Laban and all that. She has a concern for him, a concern for this promised lineage, a concern for him to have a wife. This is the similar concern to what Abraham had for Isaac, but doesn't seem to be as similar of a concern that Isaac has for Esau, and certainly not what Isaac has yet for Jacob. The next point, the last point that we had to consider tonight is also straight out of our text. Thus Esau despised his birthright, which is the very last portion of, the, of verse 34, the last verse of chapter 25. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
I want to explain quickly uh, the, the significance of the birthright, why this is a big deal. The eldest son customarily received a double portion of the division of the inheritance and the right to lead the household. In any other house, it's going to look different than it does in Abraham's house, right? Because there was a covenant made between God and Abraham and the lineage of Abraham. There's something tied to this birthright that's not tied to Laban's birthright, for example. It's not tied to, to John Smith down the road's birthright. There's something significant here that Esau does not care about even a little bit. But Jacob seems to. Listen to Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17. And it talks about birthrights just briefly here. It says, If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. By birth, Esau was to be the beginning of Isaac's strength. By birth, Esau was to be the firstborn, the promised heir of the birthright. The eldest son also had the responsibility of providing for the household materially as well as spiritually. The eldest had this responsibility. And this is the part that Esau didn't want. He despised his spiritual privileges as the firstborn. He chose the flesh not the spirit. And we can really see it uh, in everything that we've already read about here. That's his main concern is the flesh, the thrill of the hunt, the thrill of the experience. This is everything that we know about and everything we also don't know about Jacob, right? He's plain and lives in tents. If that's all we're told about Jacob here and he loves mama, then we, we know enough to know that he doesn't have the same thrill set as Esau does. He doesn't have the thrill of the hunt. He doesn't look for the experiences of the flesh as his brother does. He seems to crave everything else. But taking chapter 25 out of Genesis removes us from the fact that these characteristics are very similar to Abraham. Very similar. And it also removes the weight of this birthright. It wasn't simply that if something happened to Isaac, that Esau was going to have to be the one to get a job to put food on the table, which as we said with Laban back in uh, a few chapters ago, may have been his situation. His father may have been older at this point, uh, being a generation removed from Abraham since they were brothers. Uh, he would have been older. He may have been in a situation where he wasn't able to care for and run to the well when servants show up and all this, and that might be why we read so much about Laban. But the situation for Esau was that he didn't want the spiritual part. He just wanted what he already had. He wanted more thrills. Esau despised his spiritual privileges as the firstborn. He chose the flesh, not the spirit. We never read of Esau having a tent. We never read of Esau anywhere near an altar here. Genesis 26, verses 34 through 35 says, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite. The Hittite. And Bashemath, second, uh, second wife, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. This indicates he also had a love for worldly women, which was also something that Abraham was very concerned about for his son Isaac. Hebrews 12 verse 16 describes Esau as follows, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. It describes Esau as profane, which means of the world or common. Comes from, according to um, Henry Morris, it comes from the Latin profanus. I have to say, he said that because you'd think I, would, I made that up. It comes from the Latin word profanus, which means outside the temple, which more directly connects what we're talking about here. He's not just worldly. He's outside the temple. His mind, his heart, his desires are not ungodly things. He's worldly. Like many people today, Esau was a, a success in the world and a failure with God. The idea of a double inheritance sounded great, but not the increased responsibility or the spiritual aspects of truly leading a home and a family. So why do some mock Jacob's role in all of this? Scripture does not offer one word of condemnation or criticism so far of Jacob. Instead, it condemns Esau unequivocally. Everything we've read condemns Esau. It condemns motives. One could say, well, what has he done to receive such judgment? Seems hasty. God's not looking at surface value. God's not knocking on the outside of the hood of a car trying to figure out if it's going to run. He's looking right through it. God understood when they were in the womb what the two nations would be like, not just the two people, their whole lineage, their whole nation, all the way down the line. If I don't know that he would have told them if they asked, and I can't prove it anyways, but if, if he were to tell at that point, he would have already been able to say which one Jesus was coming from. God already knew. God already knew the heart of Esau, the heart of Jacob. It's going to be revealed in the coming chapters who these two individuals are. God already knew. God already knew. The only fault we could find with Jacob here is what we opened with, that he did not seem to fully trust the plan of God. Another similarity that he has with Abraham. Remember when Abraham left Ur and he said, if things get hairy, you just point out to everybody you're my sister instead of my wife. It's not necessarily a lie. It's half true. And that should take care of us. Horrible famine, grievous famine, go to Egypt. It didn't work out so well. The second time, let's try it again. Let's stick to the plan. You're my sister, not my wife. And again, you recall, it didn't work out so well. He trusts God. He wants to be used of God. But like me, sometimes he feels it might be necessary to help God out. Just jump ahead a little bit. God and I have the same desires, right? The same plans. If his will for me is to walk out that door and I decide to leap towards the door, I'm just helping him out. You might be carrying me out that door. If his will was for me to go a different way, we have to understand, beloved, that it's in his time too. Not just his will, but in his time. The fault or the flaw that we see in Jacob's character here is that he trusts God, he honors God, he desires godly things, he desires this birthright, he desires this spiritual responsibility, but he's conniving. He's deceitful, where he should have been patient and he should have been faithful. It was the sin of having a lack of faith, a sin that we've seen, as I said, with Abraham time and time again, and we'll also see again with Isaac momentarily. I want to close with a quote from Matthew Henry. He writes, It is the greatest folly to part with our interest in God and Christ and heaven for the riches, honors, and pleasures of this world. It is as bad a bargain as his who sold a birthright for a dish of pottage. 
Esau ate and drank, pleased his palate, satisfied his appetite, and then carelessly rose up and went his way without any serious thought or any regret about the bad bargain that he had made. By his neglect and contempt afterwards, and by justifying himself and what he had done, he put the bargain past recall. People are ruined not so much by doing what is amiss as by doing it and not repenting of it. We could go deeper in, in this particular text. How is it that Esau got so hungry that day? It's the same thing that we tell folks when they say, well, I couldn't make it to church. I ran out of time on Saturday and couldn't plan ahead. They made a decision to put something else first. Esau ended up hungry because maybe he didn't pack enough food that day. Maybe he didn't shoot enough deer that day. Abraham made a plan to go kill his son on Mount Moriah. What'd he do? He rose up early. He gathered the ingredients, collected the servants, and they were on their way. He didn't like what he was called to do. He wasn't looking to enjoy it, but he was answering the call of God. You see the difference in the contrast with Esau? Maybe see a difference in the contrast with us. How it is that we haven't put God first and we continue to find ourselves not quite enough there and whatever it might be. If it's before us and he be for us, then we ought to pursue after it as though it's our promised land. The giants are no threat to God's people. This world is no threat to God's people. Time is no threat to God's people. Death is no threat to God's people. So what doth hinder us? As I had said a few weeks ago, a lot of challenging questions in these final sermons for 2022. I pray that you will give it heavy consideration, that you will indeed get into the Word of God and see how it is that He would have for us to proceed.